You have a 47-year-old female patient who presents to you two weeks after an auto accident. Her family, who is there as well, is reporting that she can't remember very well, nor can she really think through cognitively demanding problems, like paying the bills. She has forgotten to do this in the last week, and her husband is asking for help with a better diagnosis other than the generic TBI and possible treatment to help her improve her cognition. So what do you do now? We will get into that with Brandon Adams. Welcome, everybody. Today, we have a great opportunity to move into an area of medicine that perhaps many of us have very little training, and we're excited to be able to talk today with Dr. Brandon Adams. Today, myself, Kurt Reifelman, and Scott Moore have the opportunity to interview Dr. Brandon Adams and just get an idea about his specialty, which is neuropsychology. Dr. Adams, we had the chance to get your biography and to read a little bit, and it extends from one coast to the other coast. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and about the training you've had. I'm primarily from where I had spent most of my time in California, where I had done most of my schooling and my training before going to New York. And I had done a lot of my training at UC Davis Medical Center. Six month rotations for a couple years between uh, acute rehab for acquired brain injuries and then outpatient rehab also for usually following up the same people that were inpatient initially. So getting to see the long-term development recovery from various acquired brain injuries. And then moved to New York for a little bit where I got more experience with teaching, worked a few years in a residential subacute brain injury facility, as well as working with psychiatrists in a private practice, being the neuropsychologist for her and working with a primarily geriatric population over there as well as well as just having kind of a private practice where I took referrals primarily from insurance companies and so forth before this job here at Intermountain came up for me uh, which I was able to luckily get and have been here for the last three years or so. Tell us a little bit about that. Were you recruited or were you looking to come out west or how did that happen? My wife's from here originally. We met in California and I was a little ahead of her in terms of the program. So I was finished and she ended up getting an internship in New York where she had lived previously. We were there for about 10 years. We have a couple of kids and New York City is great if you're kind of single, younger. But when you're trying to get by, because I was working four or five jobs um, I wouldn't get home till like 1 a.m. in the morning and then just start again. And I'm gone all day. And she worked at Coney Island Hospital. So a lot of our money went to having a nanny. So she was looking to come back out here. And she was one who was looking up jobs and found that there was a couple of neuropsychology positions that opened up here. She ended up getting a job with the U. She's just a clinical psychologist and uh, applied for it. Kind of put me through the ringer in terms of multiple interviews, but finally got the position here. Great, great, great. Well, we're excited to have you in our medical community and really excited to have you today. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I'm glad you extended me the invitation. We were actually wondering, what can you tell us and what can you tell the physicians here about neuropsychology? What is it and how does it differ from other psychological practices? Not just to differentiate from other psychological practices, but if we're trying to figure out where to draw the line between you have like a clinical psychologist you have a psychiatrist, neurologist, and then there's these three fields where there's a lot of overlap 
And it's even hard to draw the distinction between neuropsychology, behavioral neurology, and neuropsychiatry. Clinical psychology, psychiatry in general, is more diagnosis, treatment, management of mental disorders, independent of those causes, whether it's neurological or just you know psychological, behavioral in origin. Neurology is more kind of the diagnosis, treatment of pathology of the nervous system. So just not just the brain, but brain and spinal cord. And then that's where you get to these other fields where there's a lot more overlap. I might be a little mischaracterizing here, but behavioral neurology, as far as I know, is more experimental, research-based. I've never known a neurologist who called themselves a behavioral neurologist, but the overlap with neuropsychology is related to kind of studying the ways the brain in particular and diseases of the brain, how that affects cognition, memory, attention, reasoning, problem solving, so on, and other behaviors. Neuropsychiatry is more of how those disease processes manifest as mental disorders, depression, anxiety, and stuff like that. And neuropsychology is both an experimental and clinical practice. So there's obviously the research side, but also the practice side where there's more evaluating diagnostics and depending on the condition treatment as well. Wow. You have got my head spinning just with that introduction statement. I'm excited that we have this time with you because I need to have some clarity. But maybe could you sum up succinctly how you are unique and how you're different from those other specialties? What, who are you as a professional? I would say what really separates what I'm able to do with patients compared to, I'd say, most other specialties, even in psychology, is the amount of time we can devote to an individual case. You know, if you think of like a psychologist or therapist where, you know, they can devote 50 minutes a week, weekly, more physicians, depending on the practice, 20, 30 minutes, if they're lucky to get in within a reasonable time. Usually by time we see somebody and finish with the individual in terms of meeting face-to-face time, report, medical review, and all that stuff. We've spent like a chunk of like, you know, up to 12 hours dealing with that individual in some way, either face-to-face or as it relates to reviewing their MRI, CT scan, medical records, everything to that capacity. So when it comes to really complicated cases, it's really helpful to be able to have an individual who can kind of just focus in on that case and devote that much time thinking about it, consulting with others about it, you know, doing follow-up questions with the individual or bringing in family members or whomever to really kind of help answer the question, which a lot of times is just like diagnostic clarification, like what's going on with this person. How many of you, meaning neuropsychologists, are there in our medical community, Northern Utah? That I don't know for certain. And in terms of where I work here at Intermountain uh, McKay Behavioral Health, I'm the only, quote, neuropsychologist. There's a lot of people who are psychologists who practice as neuropsychologists, but they don't have the, the same degree of training and background that we do. You know, in terms of the different tests we use on individuals, as long as you have a degree of a certain level and license, you can purchase the tests and so on. You know, how you use the test, interpret the test can be pretty formulaic versus somebody who has more experience with the medical side of it, the neurological side of it, and knows more of the ins and outs of ways that 
tests can be used in kind of their quote non-standardized fashion in order to kind of get more qualitative or other diagnostic information. So as far as I know, in terms of neuropsychology within my organization in the Ogden region, even Cache Valley region, I'm the only one that I know of. I know there are certain individuals in private practice. As far as I know, they're not neuropsychologists by training. I could be wrong on that. But as far as I know, that that's kind of the extent of what I know. I know in Murray at the Neurosciences Institute, part of Intermountain, they have neuropsychologists as well down there. And there's a Tosh Center for usually, you know, concussion, I, I think acquired brain injuries in general, where people can do rehab down there where they have neuropsychologists as well. But I think we're in short supply overall. From my knowledge and understanding, I was actually involved with neuropsychology in Arizona at Barrows Neurological Institute. So they have obviously a, a, quite a few down there because that's what their whole institution is founded on. It did seem like there was a, a rather a paucity of neuropsychologists. Now, for most of us, we don't really know the differences that a neuropsychologist can offer to patient care. I mean, obviously, you, you just demonstrated that you guys can offer so much time to these patients. And we truly find that to be the case. Is there anything else that you can offer that's difficult for other providers to offer? I would say with the time aspect and, you know, what we specialize in has a lot of overlap with neurology. So you're looking at not just acquired brain injuries and and concussions on that one end of the spectrum, but uh, dementias, learning disabilities. And like I said, a lot of the referrals we get are related to diagnostic clarification where some people, you know, usually the basic question is, is this person depressed and it's manifesting usually for an older individual, is it manifesting as a dementia, a mild cognitive impairment? But I've seen a lot of cases where it's of kind of the psychological masquerade question, you know, is it this or is it something else? And I, I think that's kind of what our specialty is unique about because we're an interface between part of the medical aspect and neurology in particular, and then the psychological aspect, and then trying to differentiate, is it this or that, or how much of it is of one versus the other. And I think that's kind of where the field is most different compared to, as opposed to going from specialist to specialist looking for, you know, well, you have to see an endocrinologist for this or for physiologist for this. This is a little more in terms of trying to, like, where do we draw the line between what is what and what can be managed which way? I think that's a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. I actually went to an inpatient center in at Barrows, and I'm wondering, do we have something analogous or similar to that here in Utah? Do we have, like, an inpatient neurorehabilitation center for patients with, like, brain injuries? Like, for me, I had a TBI or like a stroke or some other cause. The only one that I know of in particular, and I don't have a lot of experience with it within Intermountain, is they have the Neurosciences Institute in Murray. I end up having a lot of patients end up being sent to for more kind of long-term management of issues. Now, in my particular case, a lot of that's more longer-term follow-up care with dementia, but in, in terms of acquired brain injuries, that, that would be where I would direct people. And then just adjacent to that is the Tosh Center, which I think is more focused on concussions. I could be inaccurate about that, but I know a lot of concussion treatment goes on there in terms of the rehabilitation, whether you need, you know, vision therapy, ocular motor therapy, neurovestibular therapy, and as opposed to in including just general 
physical and occupational vocational therapy as well. I'm going to take a left turn just a second and ask you, you know, you mentioned you spend, you can take up to 12 hours with a single patient. I feel exhausted sometimes with my 20 or 30 minutes with some of these patients. How do you decompress? Who is Brandon outside of your profession? Right now, options are limited, obviously, with everything that's with COVID, sure. going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, outside of it, I'm more into you know, rock climbing and uh, interval training and stuff like that. Physically, that's obviously been limited. So kind of what I had been diving into the last year is uh, I have a very extensive just like classic animation collection, golden age animation from the early 1900s, about 1960, that time period. Wow. And that's like film negative, 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, anything on DVD, Laserdisc, VHS. So I've been like just digitizing all that because, you know, those media only last for so long. So you're collecting old animation? You physically have that and then you're digitizing it yourself? Yeah digitizing it. And I've been trying to teach myself how to do restorations to, to improve the quality because a lot of films are scratched and uh, dirt and just kind of corroded over time. And other stuff that I have on VHS or DVD is like public domain stuff. And it's just not good quality. There's a few companies out there that that's their thing they do, but there's a lot of cartoons that just don't get attention. So I've kind of been trying to teach myself how to do things digitally different uh, computer programs so you know in between work and family life where i can find time to fit that in that's where my attention's mainly been focused for the last year or so very cool i feel another podcast coming on we need to talk to docs and what they do outside of their profession hey that's that's a good quarantine hobby too (laughs) there you go well i'll bring it a little bit back to your profession right now to neuropsychology As I've listened to you talk, my mind is just spinning like crazy because I can see applications of neuropsychology, for example, in the sports world. And you've talked, you've mentioned concussions already, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But also in the criminal or or legal world also, do you have any involvement at all? My involvement in that has been minimal. Always having worked in more of a clinical setting, anytime I've had to go into the legals because kind of been compelled to for one reason or another, uh, usually involving, you know, like when I worked in the subacute rehab, uh, like particular case, this individual was an immigrant, not here legally, you know, worked in construction, had a fall, you know, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, stuff like that. Family was in Guatemala. And, you know, our program, it was a year long program. So the issue is once you kind of reach that year, where do you go? Can you be discharged to the community if you can't live independently? Are there other people who will take care of you? Or if not, then you have to stay in the facility kind of indefinitely um, on a different floor for long-term care until if something can be found. And, and in this particular case, this individual's lawyers wanted him to be discharged. We thought that was against medical advice for various reasons, including cognitive difficulties and you know how to go to court and kind of testify as to why I believed, you know, he cognitively just couldn't live independently. It didn't go well for me. The lawyer made the case that I, and I'm quoting here, I I, I assaulted him with neuropsychological tests. You know, the issue is not born and raised in this country. And when we're talking about standardized testing, you know, tests get updated every decade or so. Usually they try to mass match the current census, but everybody's more or less healthy, usually citizens. 
And then the question is, well, when somebody grows up in a different country from a different educational background and so on, how can you use these tests that are standardized on this population with somebody that doesn't match that standardized population? And trying to make that case, it's easy to ask questions to make it seem like there's holes where when you have enough experience, I mean, you know, a neurological insult in one country is similar as a neurological insult in another country. You know, culture doesn't manifest the way memory impairment looks per se. What the base rate of something is could be different. But with the resources we had at the time and what you're capable of doing, we just kind of had to make the best of it. So that's kind of the extent of it. Occasionally, I'd be called in to do an evaluation of somebody who's like incarcerated for whatever reason. But usually it's kind of do the evaluation, lawyers do the thing, whatever they're going to do. It's kind of been my involvement. Could I dovetail on that one more question? Probably more uh, practical to us in primary care would be in the diagnosis of dementia. It seems like the final report that we would receive from you in a consult would be pretty critical in helping a family determine how they're going to proceed as far as power of attorney and how to take care of a patient. Could you comment on that a little bit on, on what your signature means to these families? Can you clarify what do you mean? Yeah. For example, if I were to send a dementia patient to you or at least a suspected and there were some questions about their ability to manage their money or if the family thought maybe it was time for them to seek power of attorney to assume, you know, either health care or, or manage their funds. Sometimes it's difficult uh, from a primary care standpoint for myself in a room in a 20 or 30 minute visit to really establish that. And so there are probably some legal precedents on, you know, how that happens. But I could see myself sending a patient to you and I actually I have. And your reports are extensive, but I think that helps us finally with an attorney, the family's attorney, help them get that power of attorney over that patient. It can help in several ways. Sometimes when it comes to dementia in particular, a lot of times the family member doesn't realize the extent of the difficulty. You know, you have your working memory, which is what you're holding in your mind initially, and you can hold, you know. Technically, it's like 30 seconds of information. But if you're in a conversation with somebody, you can drag that out to kind of two minutes to follow a string. So when people see an individual kind of repeating themselves and stuff like that, they don't realize how deep the memory impairment can be. So a lot of times I'll have the family member or whoever is accompanying them sit in on the evaluation because the evaluations are pretty in-depth. Like with memory, one particular test is like trying to just learn a long list of words through multiple learning trials. It's rote memory, meaning it shouldn't take a lot of effort for a healthy person to learn uh, you know, more than half of whatever the number of words are. And when you see the individual not being able to recall trial after trial, more than four or five words, which is what they can hold in their mind at one time, kind of seeing somebody struggle through those tests really makes things like how severe things are to the particular family member themselves. It's pretty eye-opening at that point, I guess. Yeah, because at a certain stage, you know, somebody with, especially memory impairment, they're not aware of kind of how things are. Because if you can't remember things, you can't remember the difficulties you have. Uh, So usually one of the, the things I'll ask somebody when I'm doing an initial interview is, do you notice the problem or is it something that other people mention to you? Um, if they say they notice it, then maybe, you know, it's mild or they just might be anxious and overworried about age related changes. Um, but if they don't notice it and other people are noticing it, then that's kind of a sign that it's more than just mild in that case. 
And other tests we can do are mock envelope, check, here's a bill, fill it out, stamp. You know, can you follow just those basic procedures that individuals, obviously different now for younger individuals, but for those of us that remember checks and envelopes and stamps and stuff like that, you know, can you do those procedures you've done for years and so on? Really highlighting to whoever needs to see it, kind of the extent of the difficulty, because sometimes that will then start the conversation or I'll bring up, like it's time to start considering power of attorney, managing finances, stuff like that. Because a lot of times family members will take over the billing and stuff thinking, you know, they're just getting older, it's computerized now, not realizing that if they were left to their own devices, even if it was, you know, the old fashioned way of get a bill, write a check, put it in, they wouldn't be able to manage even that to that extent. It helps really, to the extent possible, quantify the level of the difficulty they have with those instrumental activities of daily living. When we have people with problems recalling or being able to complete procedures that they have done comfortably for their whole lives, what are some common reasons that you see clinically for these problems? What kind of patients do you see most almost often? A good proportion are usually 50 and up. Primary concern or complaint is memory. What I've found is usually the people between 50 and 60 end up coming away with a diagnosis of anxiety. Usually subjective memory complaints at that age is just the age-related changes we experience, and certain individuals are more acutely aware of those and prone to worrying about those. Usually it's individuals who are kind of higher on the intellectual scale, notice things more than people with just more general normal range changes. And then kind of 60 and above gets to memory or memory and is it usually depression? I get, I get a lot. Is it one or the other or both? So that tends to be kind of the older spectrum. And then the various differential diagnoses that fall within that population. I get a lot of Parkinson's, Lewy body differentials, Alzheimer's, depression, psychiatric, whatever that might be, and FTD, frontal temporal dementia as well. And then occasionally you get kind of more weird ones where it's more of a psychiatric presentation, like hallucinations, delusions with no prior history as well. And then usually the 50 and under crowd, that, that's where a lot of the concussion work comes in. And for concussion patients, I take more of a primary role care where it's evaluating, referring out, and then following up regularly, and then problem solving when there's difficulties or not responding to the rehab or the treatment. Learning disabilities, although insurance doesn't really cover those, but I've found it seems a lot of Utah public schools just don't do testing for students who might need it. So a lot of people end up having to go to their primary care to get a referral to do a learning disability evaluation. And then, like I said, a lot of it is just those cases of we don't know what's going on, help us figure it out. And a lot of times it might be somebody who's referred for a, a, a you know, a mental disorder. And then my determination is it's not a mental disorder. It's something medical going on as well. And it makes sense because my experience with neuropsychology was when I was younger, I, but I was definitely in that 50 and under crowd and it was the Center for Transitional Neurorehabilitation. I would say we had a few of like older patients in there, maybe like 50s or 60s. 
but the vast majority of us were all like kids or teenagers. Most of us had a good recovery. That was good. It's very interesting that these kind of two different crowds, as you put it, I like that. As a neuropsychologist, what do you wish that other specialists or other physicians would know about your specialty? I think there's a tendency to, once a referring practitioner kind of has made their own determination that it's psychological, independent of whatever that reason might be, they, they, a lot of times they refer them to us, you know, to say eval and treat usually is the very brief referral. And in a lot of my time, this goes back to being able to have time and be thorough with individuals is making that determination. Like, do I agree with that? Or do I think it's something medical that's going on? Like a couple of years ago, a 15 year old got referred to me. He's just running around in his backyard. Wasn't paying attention, kind of bonked his head on a shed, had a legitimate concussion, you know, made his way through his primary care, his neurologist, physiatrist. And then to me, and it was, anxiety, eval and treat. I'm going through his medical records and, you know, I went through his primary care's records, neurologist records, physiatrist records, and I'm looking at his vitals. His heart rate, every appointment is like 140, 150. His blood pressure is over 140, over 80, something like that. And nobody's mentioning this in the notes. I asked the parents, yeah, they mentioned it and, you know, wasn't anything about it. I'm like, that's not, that's not anxiety. You know, in the moment, if you're anxious, having a panic attack, your heart rate can go up, but heart rates usually don't go 150, 160 when you're anxious. Yeah. I told the parents buy a little pulse oximeter, watch them at home. I just want to make sure there wasn't some sort of white coat kind of fear, anxiety, where he's just really anxious in doctor's offices. And it was the same thing at home. 160, 150. He had other bizarre symptoms for sure that they, they you know, like uh, micropsia and my, macropsia, like Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which is very unusual in any context. And then I did just a thorough looking at the medical records, wrote a very thorough note laying out my thinking. And then I sent it to the physiatrist who referred him. And I said, I don't think this is psychological. I think there's something else going on with him. He followed up on that, did some blood tests looking at for metabolites of epinephrine, norepinephrine. They were elevated in somebody. Considered a, a few, uh, yes. Wasn't that just kind of a unacknowledged at the time autonomic dysregulation? Took about over a year to resolve on its own without treatment. But it was one of those things where you came to me anxiety, you know, for anxiety and I picked up on these things by going through these records and it, it just wasn't fitting. And I tried to work with him with relaxation, deep breathing, it, with a, a nurse monitoring his heart rate. It just did not budge that heart rate at all. And it was at home in my office, every doctor's office he went into in multiple contexts. So ended up kind of, you know, going that way. So kind of the take home of that long story is a lot of times I feel like I get referrals where the determination is either it's not medical or I don't think it's medical. I think it's psychological. Go to neuropsych with the idea of just going to do therapy. And, you know, some of us do therapy, some of us not so much. I mainly reserve that for post-concussion syndrome and, and concussion patients myself. 
But I think we're more in the evaluate and diagnose aspect and then treatment, it comes secondary. It's not just get a referral and do treatment, usually with certain exceptions. So that's kind of the one thing, like maybe entrust to us that, you know, compared to other psychologists and so on, we have more of a medical background than other kind of behavioral specialties and kind of, you know, trust in us to kind of do some of that differential evaluating, figuring out as well is kind of the one thing I would want to see more of, I think. Great. I can definitely buy into that. I I always appreciate a second set of eyes and, and someone who can take the time to really process all the information we get with different specials and different people looking at that patient. So thank you for saying that. One of the questions that we are interested in would be uh, concussions in the concussion clinic in Northern Utah, particularly through McKD or even through Logan. Are you involved with that? And can you speak a little bit about the protocols and maybe just how you fit into concussion management? The program we've developed, and that involves, I'm assuming listeners know, Dr. Clark Madsen, Dr. Stephen Sharman, Dr. Blackham, Dr. Bell, Christopher Bell, and so on. They're in the sports med facility that's adjacent to the McKD Behavioral Health Building. So before I had gotten here, they've been managing all concussions of all causes. Generally, sports med physicians, their background training and comfort is sports-related concussions. The automobile accidents, the falls, you know, all the other probably more prevalent common causes of concussions, not so much in their background and just less comfort with it. Like, you know, some of the physicians in, in Logan uh, Regional, if you have a concussion and it's not sports related, they don't see you. Neurologists, uh, I think in Ogden Clinic and certainly here in the KD, don't see concussion patients. You know, where I worked in rehab, it was physiatrists we worked with the whole time. You never saw neurologists. There was this difficulty with, we have these people, usually 30 and above, mostly car accidents, getting concussions, and they're just not well for a long time. You see a 17, 18, 19-year-old football, volleyball, soccer, usually concussion, couple of weeks, they're getting clear to play. Again, I'm not comfortable with that in general, but that is kind of the protocol. And that's the speed with which you can see people recover when they're young, especially, or even with a history of just multiple concussions. I've seen so many young people use a seven, eight, nine, 10 concussions in just a few weeks they're back at their baseline. Some linger on with multiple concussions, but that history of multiple concussions and being young, I see just far greater recovery time than people getting their first concussion at age 30, 40, or 50. So it was kind of born out of that where they were seeing these individuals. My interpretation was it was kind of overwhelming their practice because when we first met, Dr. Matson kind of showed me a patient list and highlighted just these are the concussion patients who are returning meaning they've been following him a long time for his day's schedule. And it was like six patients, which is a lot compared to the other types of patients he was seeing. You know, they both said they were asking for a neuropsychologist for a long time. And it was just incidental because I had worked here for about a year at the time. They didn't know I was working here. I tried to do a meet and greet, but they were busy. It just never came to fruition. And we actually had a therapist here who got a concussion, was seeing Dr. Sharman. She mentioned... I was here. And then that led to us communicating and talking about what can we do that's different than what we're doing now. Uh, One, I think to alleviate the burden on that facility, because there's a lot of psychological involvement with concussions as well. 
So that was kind of the genesis of it. There's a lot of bureaucratic stuff to try to figure out and get around. But basically, the way it netted out now, for the most part, is if somebody gets a concussion, uh, usually non-sports related, because the sports related is a different protocol, which I'm a part of, but I'm more of a secondary in, in that. So, you know, car accident, fall, whatever. Usually, they still get referred to sports med, but sports med says, go here first, see me first. Um, and then I do an evaluation. And what I do differently compared to what a lot of colleagues of mine would do is, you know, they would do kind of a full neuropsychological battery, which I would think is medically unnecessary when you're concussed with headache and ocular motor dysfunction and dizziness and, and just thinking makes you feel sick and nauseous and stuff like that. So it's more talk about the accident, what you can remember, not to kind of gauge was there post-traumatic amnesia, not how clear are memories post-concussion symptom scale. And then I, I make the point of going symptom by symptom that they report and try to get as much qualitative natural history that I can. I do do reaction time testing, simple choice and more complex because that really helps stage where they are. Because concussion initially is metabolic. And then secondarily, once the brain metabolism has been thought to have returned to baseline after 10, 14 days or so, there might be some of those structural changes in terms of the shearing stress that's put on the white matter in the brain. So reaction time test really kind of tells me where they might be in that area. And then a general, you know, they'll do the VOMS, vestibular ocular motor screen, to kind of help figure out, do they need neurovestibular? And what's a little harder to figure out, and I usually defer to the neurovestibular therapist is, do they need the vestibular or do they need the ocular motor treatment versus other treatments? And then if there's usually other neck, back strains, difficulties like that, have them then see a sports med physician as well. If there's a medication need for headaches, antidepressants, stuff like that, sports meds will see them as well. And then I tend to follow the individual as they're going through their rehab program chronically. So if it's a really acute case, because I see a lot of people within a week I'll have them come back two weeks later, then two weeks later, and then at one month, monthly thereafter. And then just check in with how everything's going, do reevaluations, recheck the symptoms. Is there a plateau in the treatment and so on? Do you need to see a different specialist, a neurooptometrist, stuff like that, a headache specialist, stuff like that. And then any of the psychological stuff that can arise from that, whether that's difficulty coping. It puts a lot of strains on relationships because there's a change in the dependency ratio on individuals. You know, can you go back to school? Can you go back to work? What kind of accommodations do you need? Stuff like that. So that's kind of the program as it's evolved naturally since we initially started. And it's been about two years now. That sounds like a great service for all of our patients up here. Hopefully I never need it personally, but <laughs> I almost get the feeling you have multiple offices or you every day is different for you. What is a week like for you and where are you physically? I'm just located solely in the McKady Behavioral Health Building, which is, I'm not clear because I'm not from here. Either it's the old McKady Hospital or it's where the old McKady Hospital was. I'm not sure. Correct. The hospital's gone. So it's the, L it used to be called the LTD Building. You've probably heard that, but. Yeah, so, so it's there, which is just next to the uh, orthopedic spine sports med facility. So I'm in there and you know, just have an office out of which I work. 
my Mondays I had designed initially is concussion patients only. So every slot was just left open for concussion patients. And then my other new patient slots would be for anything else plus concussion. I've gotten a lot busier since then. I can imagine. You know, after about a year, some people from Logan Regional reached out to me. So I started seeing their non-sports related concussions in Murray, the neurosciences, they lost some of their neuropsychologists and they're short of staff right now. And I think booked out really far to the point they're not, or at least at the end of last year, weren't accepting new patients. I don't know if that's changed. So I'm getting a lot of overflow from both ends of the region. So now my schedule is pretty booked. Yeah, but usually it's some combination of either I'm seeing concussion people and Concussion people, I'm always able to work because I have built-in slots that are just breaks because I have to do a lot of writing. So the, the person who handles scheduling concussion knows uh, you can slip people in there. So usually if you have a concussion and you've been referred, uh, you can get in to see me the same day or the next day. Uh, I've always made that accommodation. And then otherwise, I'm, I'm spending my time more or less doing eva- evaluations, which I usually do in just two-hour blocks. A lot of neuropsychologists will do these marathon six, eight hour blocks of testing. I'm not a fan of that. I try to do what's called like one and done. Like I believe in the economy of testing because there's a base rate of like the more testings you do, the more quote impaired tests you're going to get because we all have strengths and weaknesses. So I try to be as specific as possible to whatever the um, the, the referral question is and, and not over-test and just try to establish whatever the area is and, and what might be related to the area is normal, not normal, normal, not normal. Do the quicker turnaround time and, and send a note to the referring physician or whatever the case is. So that's kind of my day, days. That sounds like a very, very packed schedule. I'm definitely not envious. Brandon, where do you sit with regarding seeing PEDS Patients, pediatric patients, I guess with concussions, that's pretty, pretty much a given. But what about other uh, scenarios? Generally, I'm late adolescence and older. I, I do make exceptions for uh, concussions, obviously, because I just have experience with the whole age range as it relates to head injuries. But yeah, in terms of that in particular, yeah. We have other psychologists here who also do neuropsychological testing, who they're more pediatric oriented, especially autism as well. So there's other individuals within this facility that do a lot of pediatric stuff, but I'm primarily mid to late adolescence and onward. Does adult attention deficit disorder fit into your wheelhouse? Do you have anything to do with that or would you be willing to see those? Yeah, I get referred for that a lot. You know, I mean, ADHD, it's a, a clinical diagnosis, meaning just based on what people report and observe. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody meets criteria that it's going to manifest on neuropsych testing per se, because we're trying to extract the best performance possible out of people. So, you know, you're in a quiet environment, it's distraction free. So there's some people who usually the hyperactive type, they can't sit still and they can't focus on tests. It's obvious, but kind of those who are generally inattentive for that period of time, you know, they can kind of do well. There's certain tests that are a little more sensitive, like reaction time variability. So you can have a normal reaction time, but your responses are more variable above and below your average. That's usually kind of a, a hallmark thing you, you see with people with difficulty sustaining their attention. And then there's the personality aspects that go along with it well. But I see that that's one of my more, I've, I didn't mention that, but yeah, that's one of my more common referral 
is 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 basically what does the ADHD look like? Is it more of that hyperactive behavioral, but in the right setting, the individual can attend and focus and learn? Or is there some other variant that way? I really want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us and discuss this with us. I think that all the physicians here have gained a new perspective, and myself included. It's been really, really enlightening to just see how another kind of lesser known specialty in medicine or in the medical fields is how it works and how we can interact with that. We really do appreciate you coming out here and sharing this with us for the whole society. And we should go climbing together sometime. I mean, you're here in Ogden, might as well. I was going to say, you have to know Scott. He's got a lot of contacts up there. That's his life. So, Do you do outdoor climbing or indoor climbing usually? I've always been indoor climbing. I got into it in New York, Manhattan, and they had a facility called the Cliffs in uh, Long Island City that I, I went to a lot. And there's a place south, north, north Ogden somewhere I was a member of until... The front? Yeah, the front. Yeah, until all this madness started happening and I, I let my membership lapse. So it's been a good year or so. Well, if you're interested, reach out to me. Up here at Weber State, they just built a brand new wall, like this huge building. It's actually really cool. I took my kids there the other day. I would like that, especially since it's right across the street. Uh, if, if you want to, just feel free to email me or, or give me a call or whatever. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks, everybody. That was awesome. Bye, guys. Thank you, guys. This has been a production by the Ogden Surgical Medical Society. Your producers were Clark Madsen, MDMS, Teresa Puskedra, MPC, and the Ogden Surgical Medical Society Board of Directors. Your executive director was Teresa Puskedra. Your hosts were Kurt Reifelman, MD, and me, Scott Moore, DO. Editing and sound design done by Colton Gomez, and this is all supported by members of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society like you. Thank you. Thank you.